Good morning. Good to be together. Welcome uh, to this worship gathering of our church, Fellowship Raleigh. If you're uh, one of those people that has a Bible today, turn uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. That's in the New Testament, first book of the New Testament, chapter 5, or find uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, on your phone or device or something. We're going to be there this morning looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And you might ask, why are we looking at Matthew chapter 5? Don't we need to finish our very lengthy and deep study of the book of Acts? Or do we have more to say about the church, Palestine, and Israel from the series from a couple weeks ago? And the answer to that question is, uh, we will finish the book of Acts. We will finish or we will die trying. Um, but, but I wanted to just take some time, and it's, it's going to be as we lead up to Easter. Easter is 42 days away. It is March 31st, Sunday, March 31st. And we're doing a huge outreach as a church for this year's Easter Sunday. We are holding our service, not here, but at Ligon Middle School in the auditorium. And that's a big deal. It seats a thousand people. I was thinking about it. I think that will be at least three times larger than any space that Fellowship Raleigh's ever held a worship service in. We've had a concert uh, there before, but not a Sunday morning service. Our goal is to see 450 people there that Sunday. And, you know, that's going to mean inviting people. And it's going to mean a lot of things. Um, there's going to be powerful stories shared through baptisms that Sunday. Also, the following Sunday, April 7th, here back at our church um, with the many people who need to and want to get baptized. And so this is very exciting. And I guess I, guess I would just say that, you know, this is not going to just happen. Um, it's not going to just happen and then go well. It is going to, and here's what I would say, as your pastor I would ask you in, to make this a big deal personally. This is a big deal for our church this year, our Easter outreach. And, you know, if you're not part of our church and you're kind of like, oh, that's cool that y'all are doing that, I would invite you to make this a big thing. Be a part of this. Like I said, it's not going to just happen. We're going to have to really come together as one big team over the weeks ahead to pray, to invite intentionally, uh, to serve, everyone serving, all hands on deck, um, for some to get baptized. And then today, and this is why I want to go into Matthew 5 today, because it's part of it too, to focus on the why. Why would we even do this? What conviction would lead us to go out of our church building and be in a space in the community and have an outreach service there. And that leads me to the title of the message this morning, which is to make a difference for Christ. To make a difference for Christ. We don't just want to be Christians. Although, oh, by God's grace, please, Lord, help us to be Christians, right? Amen. We're not downplaying that. But we also want to make a difference for Christ in the world. We don't just want to make our point. We want to make a difference. We don't, you know, we're not just trying to be. We're not just trying to be different. We're trying to make a difference 
for Christ. That is not just what we're trying to do. That is what Christ has called us to. And, you know, I want to just put in here real quick, maybe you would say, I don't feel called to that. I feel called to serve in the church. I'm a, and listen, I can remember saying to someone when I was a young Christian, I said, and this is so cheesy, like I said, I'm a keeper of the aquarium, not a fisher of men. I said that. I said that. I came up with it. And I said that to this guy that was trying to get me to do outreach. But here's the thing. And sometimes we say things like that, or we might say, you know, I'm just too busy in this season to care about my neighbors or to make space for outreach. And you know what? But that's just stuff that we say. And maybe we have reasons we say it. Maybe we thought a lot about it, prayed about it. I don't know. But that's what we say. But do we let Jesus say to us who we are and what purpose he has for us? And I want to tell you that we see in this passage this morning that Jesus does exactly that. He says to us that we are to make a difference for Christ, every Christian, every church. And so... You say, why are we talking about making a difference from Matthew 5? Because that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. He is in this famous place called the Sermon on the Mount. And he has just finished the nine Beatitudes. And that is uh, where he says, blessed is the man who, and then he follows that up with, you know, the blessing and then how the world might come against that person. Nine of those, the Beatitudes, This is in Matthew 5. That's the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. And then what do you think the very next thing in this very epic, historic, famous Sermon on the Mount is after the Beatitudes? What do you think's first? What do you think's next? What's the next thing? It's this passage. It's this passage about our calling to be salt and light in the world. Now, why do I say Jesus is talking about making a difference? Because here's the logic, right? Here's what's happening in the passage, Jesus has said, listen, here's the Beatitudes. Here's what I want you as my disciples to be like. You need to live like this. This is kingdom living. And then in almost every Beatitude, he says, but when you live like that, the world is going to come at you with persecution, with temptation, and with everything it has. That's the Beatitudes. But then when we come to Matthew 5, 13 through 16, it's as if Jesus is saying, hold on. It's not a one-way street, though. We're going to come at the world, too. Your calling is to be salt and light. That's what Jesus is essentially saying here. He has this crazy idea, crazy for us, but not for him that the church would not just go to the safest room in the house to ride out the storm. That the church would not raise the drawbridge, memorize the Bible, and live like a separate monastic commune in our world. No, you, I, and the church together are called not just to be Christians, but to make a difference for Christ. The Christian life is not only about keeping worldliness out. It's about getting out of the church and making a difference for Christ in the world. And so the big idea this morning, 
kind of that sort of wraps this whole passage, I think, in the points that we have together is this. I must seek to make a difference in my world for Jesus Christ by living out the identity and purpose that he has given me to be salt and to be light. How does Jesus envision us making a difference? What's the biblical strategy? That is what we get in this passage. So let's read it, and then I'll pray. Matthew 5, 13 is where I'm going to start and go through verse 16. So let's read. Here we go. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but set it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, bow with me on a pray. And then we'll get into this passage. Oh God, we come before you in prayer um, because Lord, we don't just want to exercise our minds only and just be students right now, Lord. We want to be servants. We want to be spirit-filled Christians. We want to be disciples gathered around the precious words of our God, of our Heavenly Father, looking for the steps you want us to take, looking for your will in our lives. And so, Lord, would you encourage us this morning? Lord, would you be here with us as we study your word? Lord, we lift up those not with us today. Lord, we lift up our college students, our college ministry, having a retreat in the mountains this weekend. Lord, we pray for them. God, would you work in the students' lives? Would you change some students' lives forever this week? Lord, we love you and thank you. Help us to be salt and light in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So the first point this morning, if you're ready for it, is I am the salt of the earth. I am the salt of the earth. That's for you and me. I, I am the salt of the earth. That's for us, plural, as a, as a community. We are the salt of the earth. You might even say it. Just say, I am the salt of the earth. Just try it. I am the salt of the earth. Let's get a little more enthusiastic. Jesus is telling you, you're the salt of the earth. Let's just say we heard him. I am the salt of the earth. That's right. You are. That's what Jesus says to, to his disciples. So if you're in Christ, you are the salt of the earth. So let's unpack the three meanings of this. First, so there's three little bullet points here. And the first one is slowing moral decay. Let me explain, because that doesn't sound exciting or fun, right? <clears throat> Jesus is saying, when he says you're the salt of the earth, he's saying you are a moral preservative to a decaying earth creation world. Salt, sodium chloride, was the moral preservative, I'm sorry, the practical preservative of the first century. It was the refrigerator, 
preserving things from expiring and getting stale and sour. In fact, Roman soldiers used to get paid in salt because it was so valuable. And our English word salary comes from the word salt. You can hear it in there, salary, right? That's true, though. The refrigerator was invented in 1876. Does that not blow your mind? What were they doing before that? Salt was the preservative. Salt can keep something from expiring. And so in Germany in 1876, a refrigerator was invented. But prior to that, and especially in the first century, everyone used salt to preserve perishable items, to slow the decay of meat or milk or whatever. Okay, so here's what that means. Let me, let me break that down for what Jesus is trying to say. Here's a fact. God created the world and he created human beings. And he says in the book of Genesis, in the beginning of the Bible, it was good. He even says, very good. But mankind sinned, rebelling against God. And sin has corrupted everything and everyone. It's true. The news reports it, culture shows it, and the Bible teaches it. Death entered, creation groans. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, the world is broken and in moral decay. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and by extension through them to you and me this morning, is that you are moral preservative. You're the salt of the earth. You are to be a person as a Christian living the kingdom life who preserves the good in the world. Wherever a salty Christian is living out the kingdom life, goodness is preserved. Evil flourishes less, and moral decay happens slower. Think of it. Think of how this would work. In times of great corrupting anxiousness, a Christian points to the goodness peace. In times of racial and political division, a Christian living the kingdom life points to the goodness of true unity, preserving good. In times of objectification of the body, of obsession with outward appearance, of lust and of porn, a disciple of Jesus Christ living the kingdom life points to the goodness of inward beauty, of love, of purity, of modesty. In times of gossip and complaining at work, the Christian finds the good in others and in situations. And the Christian models and demonstrates and recommends gratitude. Preserving the good pointing to the good, which points to the goodness of God. That is what it means to be the salt of the earth, to slow moral decay. That's the first meaning. The second part of being the salt of the earth is bringing kingdom flavor to a bland world. 
This is a brilliant metaphor from Jesus, who is a master teacher. He is saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are to bring flavor to your relationships, to your world, to this life. Salt adds flavor. It brings zest wherever the right amount is added, right? The salt of the earth is not to just be this moral preservative who's boring, right? Like the designated driver, the moral preservative. I'm here to slow moral decay. Oh, you're so boring. No, they're not supposed to just be that. They're to be that, but then also, hmm, what do we do with this guy or this girl? They're also bringing so much life and zest and joy and hope to our lives. Not Danny or Debbie Downer, but the life of the party like Jesus. Bringing flavor and joy, making things better. Being a life giver, not a life taker. To flavor a bland world with kingdom flavor. Think of it. And then the third little piece of being the salt of the earth is this. Living different. Living different. Look at verse 13, the second part there. It says, but if salt has lost its taste, Jesus is asking a question here to his disciples. How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus asked them this rhetorical question because everyone knew that salt is a stable chemical compound. You know, they were chemists in the first century. Sodium chloride is a stable chemical compound, and it does not itself expire, and it never loses its taste or saltiness. However, if it is mixed with a bunch of other substances, it becomes no longer good for anything. To be salty, salt must be just salt. Nothing more. Contaminated salt, Jesus is saying, is useless. Salt only preserves and flavors effectively when it is, keyword, different. So hear me, followers of Jesus Christ who are imperceptibly blended in with the world around them and its interests and values, they cease to be different, are, according to Jesus, useless. And their flavor is the exact same as the world around them. So useless, in fact, that Jesus says, what do you do with it? What does he say? Except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, what's he talking about? Like, that people would throw things out and then show like disapproval by like doing a trample on them? No. He is saying, thrown on the road where people are walking. The first century garbage can, just throw it on the road. What a challenge from Jesus. Whoa, Lord, help us. This is a prayer for us. Lord, help us to be different and to bring flavor to the world without being imperceptibly blended in with the world. I read an article by a pastor named Andrew Wilson, really good article. And he said this about Jesus' statement that we are salt of the earth. He said, this means we are ordinary. We are everywhere. We get involved in almost everything. Think about how often you encounter salt. 
probably for breakfast, probably for lunch. If you live in, you know, colder parts of our country, it's on the road as you drive here. It's everywhere. We are everywhere. We get involved in almost everything, whether we are noticed or not. I must seek to make a difference in my world for Jesus Christ by living out the identity and purpose that he has given to me. Be salt and now be light. Point two, I am the light of the world. I won't make you say this one, but let's pretend we did. I'm the light of the world. Jesus is saying to you, you are the light of the world. Think of it. Think of the fact that Jesus is not here saying, hey, guys, hey, guys, guys, I really want you to be the light of the world. He's not saying that. He's not saying, can't you guys just work a little harder so then you could become the light of the world? He's not saying that. I think he probably does want us to do those things, but he is giving an identity statement to you this morning. You are the light of the world. So think of it. So as salt preserves a morally decaying creation, light illumines a dark world. I just Let's pause for one moment. Have you ever played that desert island game where, you know, you, someone says, if you could bring like two things or three things to like an uninhabited desert island, what three things would you bring? You know, and you know, like you play that game and people, it's kind of a way for people to show what they feel that are important to them. And, you know, Christians always say my Bible, you know, it's just like, whatever, man. Um, <laughs> but but like, think of it, survival. So just pause for a moment and think about what Jesus is just saying to Christians, what we're to be. Think of how practical his vision for us is. You're basically to be a flashlight and a cooler. That's it. Perhaps the title of the message should be making a practical difference for Christ. As a church or as Christians, we should in some very real way be the very practical and helpful things that non-Christians, even though they may not believe the same as us, want if they were to be left alone on a desert island. It's amazing how practical Jesus is here. So, okay, we got to get into the light. You are the light of the world. So the appreciation of light in the first century before electricity, hello, was major. Light is not complicated as a metaphor. It simply enables visibility. It practically helps people see. It helps people see all things, to see truth, to see themselves rightly, to see God, to see God's love, to see their neighbor to see what is right and wrong, to see mercy, to see beauty, to see God's plan for salvation, to see Christ on the cross dying for their sins, to see grace, to see how with their life they might glorify God. It really, light enables you to see, and that's what it does. So let's consider this by looking at how Jesus breaks this down. And I've given you a table and we'll show it on the screen too. So in verse 14, the second part, he says, you are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so that's the verse, city on a hill. 
But if you think of it, what kind of light is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the light that a city gives off. It is the light that you see from a distance. It is regional light. Again, imagine before electricity. He's, on, he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, which is, um, in case you know you need to know this, like they're around the Sea of Galilee. They're kind of on like a grassy, there's trees. It's, it's, it's sort of like the the bank of the Sea of Galilee that sort of goes up into the mountain. So they're on that mountain. And no doubt, Jesus is pointing out. I don't know if he gave this message part of it in the evening, and maybe it's getting dark, and they can see Capernaum. And they can see even further Tiberias. But, but Jesus is saying, do you see? The only reason you can see it is because it's a bunch of light gathered together. It's a community that have come together to be light. That's a city. And a city on a hill, especially, cannot be hidden. We're to be a regional light. We're to be a, because when you are stranded in the wilderness and you see that light of a city on a hill in the first century, you know that's a place of refuge. We're to be a place of refuge. He continues, verse 15. But before that, let me read to you Isaiah 49, verse 6, so you can just see some of the Old Testament giving vision to this. Isaiah 49. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Now back to verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. Think of it. So first, it's a city light. It's the idea of light gathered. Now it's the light of a lamp in a house. It's the idea of of vision for your family. First, it's vision for the region. Now it's family vision. Practically, that kind of thing. Like, where's the bathroom? Where's the doorknob? Family vision. He's like, if you had a lamp in the first century inside of your house before electricity, would you put it under a basket? Hello? No. You would bless your family with that light. You would use it in all the practical ways that it's useful. You would put it on a stand in the home. Light guides us. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my Verse 16, Jesus continues, in the same way. So in the same way as a city and as a lamp on a stand, in the same way, Jesus now says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now note in verse 16, there's a parallelism happening here. Your light runs in parallel to, do you see it? Your good works. Essentially, Jesus is saying your light is your good works. So he's getting real applicational here. And so the kind of light he's talking about here is personal light. Your good works. In fact, the word he chooses 
for the word good here means a little bit more than just morally good. It means beautiful works, outwardly good and beautiful. John Stott defines the word that Jesus uses as practical, visible deeds of compassion. And so we are to let our light shine before others. Where? Where's the location of the light in this case? Before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that would imply that they would become a Christian to then be able to give glory to your Father in heaven. So it's very much about sharing the gospel of Jesus with people, as well as doing good works. So the bottom line here is this. Do good, beautiful, compassionate works that benefit others. Be together as a church, a refuge. Be gathered light. Be a people doing compassionate, beautiful, good works together in our community. And so let us use our minds, our resources, our time, our relationships to do this with excellence. What is the big why behind everything Jesus is saying? Do you see it? It's in the verse. It's at the end of verse 16. Glory to God in heaven. You say, well, I don't want to do too much good works because it's not about me. No, Jesus does not envision it being about you. Glory to God in heaven. So let's close with this. Jesus is obviously a brilliant teacher. I mean, what a great couple of verses in the New Testament. Amen? Obviously is a brilliant teacher. The whole world respects the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through chapter 7. However, as Christians, if you are in Christ, we know a secret. Jesus is not just a brilliant teacher, though he is that. Jesus has not just given us instructions for living, though he has done that. Jesus preserves the true good in our lives. And Jesus is the true light in our lives. We're nothing apart from him. He died on the cross. He rose again in victory over death. He sent his spirit to dwell in us and to empower us as we abide in him to live out this life that he calls us to live because of him, through him, and for him. What a savior. I must seek to make a difference in my world for Jesus Christ by living out the identity and purpose he has given me through the cross, through faith in him to be salt and light. Let's pray.